Well, welcome to the service this morning. We appreciate you choosing to be here. If you are a family or friends or community visitors to this congregation, you are welcome. We are glad that you are here. We hope that you've been uplifted and edified by this service thus far. As we enter into our teaching portion, we're going to continue a series that we've been talking about on making a case for the inspiration of the Bible. And this is an important topic in my mind because today we live in a society, in a world where there's a lot of different theories uh, that are purported as fact. There's a lot of people that believe uh, that the Bible is nothing more than a collection of ancient texts that mean nothing more than any other ancient texts written by any other people uh, throughout time. And I believe that there's something special about the Bible. I believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. I believe that it changes lives that it has changed our lives, people here in this congregation and people across the world, that it helps in our relationships, it helps in our jobs, it helps in our families, it helps in every aspect of our life if we'll apply the things that God has written in his book. So the purpose of this series is to look at whether or not the Bible truly is the inspired word of God. And so we're going to look inside and outside the Bible at some ways that we can think about talking to other people that may question, why do I need to listen to the Bible? And here's some things that I think can be reassuring for our faith. Specifically today, we're going to talk about, is the Bible historically accurate? And this is our part number four of this series. Is the Bible historically accurate? This is our roadmap. So in part number one, we asked the question, is the Bible textually reliable? And we looked at evidences of the fact that the same Bible that we are reading in our language today is virtually identical to all of the very ancient manuscripts that have been found of both Old and New Testament books. And we can believe fully and put our confidence in the fact that we're not reading some twisted version of what was originally written, but we're written the words, or reading the words as they were written originally. We looked in part two about is the Bible truly prophetic? And we looked at Old Testament prophecies, men that made predictions about things that if there wasn't a God behind that letting those men know those things, how in the world could they have gotten those things right? Part number three we talked about is the Bible supported by science. And we looked at the fact that there's uh, the Big Bang Theory and evolution and all these things that are taught today when in reality when we dig into the science, what we see is that it supports the biblical story of a created universe of created human beings. And then today we're going to look at the historical aspect. Look at some archaeology. Look at some historical records related to the things that we find in the Bible. So we're going to start off with Romans chapter 15 and verse 4 that says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. I read this because Paul is telling the church at Rome and us 2,000 years later that we look to those Old Testament passages and Scriptures to learn from them. And if all they are are a collection of made-up stories that never happened, we can't really learn anything of value from that. But these things were written so that we can learn from them. They are true. They are real. They are events in the past that we can look to. But some people don't see it that way. I want to read to you an excerpt from an article by a man named Daniel Lazar. This was published back in 2002. It's called False Testament. Archaeology refutes the Bible's claim to history. This is what Mr. Lazar said in this article. He said, in the last quarter century or so, archaeologists have seen one settled assumption after another concerning who the ancient Israelites were and where they came from proved false. Rather than a band of invaders who fought their way into the Holy Land, the Israelites are now thought to have been an indigenous culture that developed west of the Jordan River around 1200 BC. Abraham, Isaac, and the other patriarchs appear to have been spliced together out of various pieces of local lore. The Davidic Empire, which archaeologists once thought as incontrovertible as the Roman, is now seen as an invention of Jerusalem-based priests in the 7th and 8th centuries BC, who were eager to burnish their national History. Now, the argument that Mr. Lazar makes and that some biblical skeptics try to, to go with is this fact that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, those patriarchs, we read about them in the Old Testament, they didn't really exist. In fact, King David didn't even really exist. Back in the 7th and 8th century BC, Israel, this very small nation compared to all the other big nations in the world that economically, uh, religiously wasn't really having a big impact in the world, that they wanted something bigger and dreamed bigger dreams, and so they made up this grand history with all these patriarchs and this great King David in order to burnish their own national history and try to make themselves something. Did those guys really exist? Did Israel really exist as we see in the Bible? Well, I want to show you some things in archaeology because he says that archaeology is what's refuting this. I want to show you some things in archaeology that's actually proving the story that the Bible tells is right. So we're going to look at some archaeological finds. First thing I want to show you are the Ebla tablets. 
Now, these tablets come from the ancient kingdom of Ebla. They're dated to about 2500 to 2250 BC. This would be a contemporary time frame to many of those patriarchs. Uh, from uh, that ancient kingdom of Ebla, northern Syria, these tablets were discovered in 1975. About 17,000 individual tablets have been recovered. The Sumerian and Ebleic languages used to share many names with biblical text, including Abram, David, Esau, Ishmael, Israel, Michael, and Saul. Now here's what I, the point I want to make with that is not necessarily that when they were reading through these tablets that these are the same people that are talked about in the Bible, but rather that in the same general time period, these are common names that we see used in archaeological finds from that same time period. Now, if we go with the theory that Mr. Lazar had, and we say in the 7th or 8th century BC, the Jews just started making stuff up, it, we, what we would likely have found in the Bible is that the common names in the biblical text were names from the 7th and 8th century, not from back in this time period. But what we see is that in this same time period, the names of the people in the Bible and the names used uh, here in this ancient kingdom were very similar, a lot of the same names. Now, in addition to that, there's also common city names, Salem, Hazor, uh, Lachish, Gaza, Sinai, Ashtaroth, Joppa, and Damascus. You'll recognize those cities from Old Testament. Uh, these cities were mentioned as a part of the historical record in these tablets. They really, truly existed. Uh, and then, in fact, in Genesis 14 and verse 8, there's a scripture that says, And there went out the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, the same as Zoar. Now, these five kings or kingdoms in scripture kind of constituted an alliance together and worked together. In these Ebla tablets, you know what they found? These same five kingdoms listed in that alliance in this exact same order that the Bible puts them in. And so, common names, city names... Places, kingdoms that worked together, all of these things in archaeology are backing up what we see about the Israelites in the Old Testament. Uh, Dr. Uh, Pedinato, an epig uh, epigrapher from the University of Rome, said many of these names occur in the same form in the Old Testament so that a certain interdependence between the culture of Ebla and that of the Old Testament must be granted. Uh, Dr. Wilson said it is at least thought-provoking that findings such as those at Ebla consistently support the Bible as a thoroughly acceptable record. So, Mr. Lazar wrote, writes this article, Archaeology is refuting the Bible's claim and tries to pretend that archaeological finds are proving the Bible false. Here's an example, a piece of archaeology, that is simply proving the things that we see in the Bible are true. Let's look at another one. It's the Tel Dan Stele from about 900 to 850 B.C., now, a stele is an upright stone. It's a monument that's usually used to commemorate a great victory. Uh, so kings of old would build these after they've won a battle. Uh, this is uh, fragments of it that were discovered in 1993 and 1994 in Tel Dan, north of Israel. And it commemorates the victory of an Armenian king over his two southern neighbors. Now, I want you to think back to your Old Testament history. Kingdom of Israel splits into two. You've got the ten tribes up north that are known as Israel. You've got the two tribes to the south that are known as the kingdom of Judah. On this stele, this archaeological find, we've got from an outside culture, this Armenian king who describes a victory that he wins over his two neighbors, the king of Israel and the king of the house of David. Now, what tribe was David from? Judah. That's talking about the kingdom of Judah. Also interesting and important to note, this was the first archaeological find that had any reference to the house of David. Now remember, Mr. Lazar's argument was David was made up. They burnished that to burnish their national history. They created this great king. But here we've got an Armenian king talking about defeating the house of David. Okay? Uh, Dr. Eric Klein said, Today, after much further discussion in academic journals, it is accepted by most archaeologists that the inscription is not only genuine but that the reference is indeed to the house of David, thus representing the first textual evidence found anywhere outside the Bible for the biblical David. Let's look at another one. This is the Misha Stele. All right, so again, another upright stone or monument commemorating a victory. Uh, this is commemor commemorating a victory of Misha, who was a Moabite king, and we actually see Misha in Scripture, in the Old Testament Scripture. Now, this is popularly known as the Moabite Stone, uh, this was discovered in 1868 in Debon, Jordan, about 20 miles east of the Dead Sea. And it's going to record the revolt, or rebellion, of Misha, the king of Moab, against Israel. And in line one of this stele, it says, I am Misha, son of Chemoshiadi, the king of Moab, the Dibonite. 
Now in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, you know what we find? The scripture says, And Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep master. So we find Moab, or, or Misha, rather, the king of Moab in scripture. And we've also got this monument that he created that says, I am Misha, the king of Moab. All right, let's look at some of the other lines. We can't read, as you can see, this is a big one. It's got a lot of lines on there. We can't read the whole thing. But I want to share a, a few of the, the fascinating things that fascinate me anyway uh, from this steely. Lines four through seven on this says, As for Omri, the king of Israel, and he humbled Moab for many years, slash days, uh, translation possibility of either years or days uh, on that. For Chemosh was angry with his land, and his son reigned in his place. And he also said, I will oppress Moab in my days, he said so, all right? So you've got Misha, this king of Moab, that's talking about now a king of Israel, Omri. In fact, we read about Omri in the book of 1 Kings. We see that story. Uh, 1 Kings 16, verse 29, it says, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab, the son of Omri, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now notice Misha also said, Omri oppressed us, essentially, and his son oppressed us. Who was Omri's son? Misha doesn't name him by name, but the Bible does. It's Ahab. And so if you know your Old Testament history, you know that at that point that Omri was reigning, the Bible says that he was more wicked than any king that had come before him. And then when Ahab, his son, took over and began to reign, the Bible said, and he was more evil than any king that had come before him. And that's not good things, good characteristics to be said about you. But these are the guys that Misha, this king of Moab, is talking about in this stele, in this monument. Lines 17 and 18 on this monument says, And from there I took the vessels of Yahweh, and I presented them before the face of Chemosh. A couple of interesting things here. You recognize the word Yahweh? That's the Hebrew word for Jehovah God. And here we've got an external source, a piece of archaeology from an external culture that he's saying, as a part of this revolt and rebellion that I put on against Israel, I stole the vessels of Yahweh. And then he says, I presented them before the face of Chemosh. Chemosh was the Moabite deity. That was the God that they served. Interestingly enough, the Bible also talks about Chemosh. Judges 11 verse 24 says, Wilt not thou possess that which Chemosh thy God giveth thee to possess? Now how is it possible for folks to look at the biblical record and go, it's just all made up stuff, when you've got these external sources that are lining up exactly? And we've got Yahweh mentioned, we've got Chemosh mentioned in the Bible, and then again in line 31, we've got the house of David. It said, in the house of David dwelt in Haranan. Now this was able to be translated actually through the discovery of that last stele we talked about, the Tel Dan stele, which was the first record of the house of David anywhere. After they were successfully able to translate that, they were then able to translate what the line on this said. And this is a second external source that talks about the house of David being in existence. A little bit more as a part of that rebellion that he's putting on, it says, and Chemosh said to me, go take Nebo from Israel. Nebo was a small city. And Israel said, and I went in this night and I fought against it from daybreak until midday. And I took it and I killed the whole population. So Nebo's not saying I killed all of Israel or I destroyed Israel. He's saying, I went to this city and I attacked them and I won. I beat them. I killed them. And that's where he stole the vessels of Yahweh and presented them before Chemosh, so to speak. Line 70 says, I triumphed over him and over his house and Israel has perished. Now, that's a bit of an exaggeration, as we'll see as we go through here. Uh, but he's seeing this as a great victory because they had been oppressed by Israel, essentially servants or slaves underneath Israel, and they're rebelling against Israel for their freedom. Now, in the scriptural version, we see 2 Kings 3, verse 5, says it came to pass when Ahab was dead that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So exactly what this stone is commemorating, this successful rebellion, we see this rebellion happening in the Bible. 2 Kings 3, verse 24 actually follows the story of the Moabites rebelling against Israel. It says, And when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and smote the Moabites so that they fled before them. But they went forward smiting the Moabites even in their country. So the Moabites attack and rebel. And according to Misha, they have some success in this, in this town of Nebo. And then the Israelites are going to fight back and they're going to push them back into Moab. In verse 26 and 27, it says, when the king of Moab, or Misha, saw that the battle was too sore for him, he took with him 700 men that drew swords to break through even into the, in, unto the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his eldest son that should have reigned in his stead and offered him for a burnt offering upon the wall. 
and there was great indignation against Israel, and they departed from him and returned to their own land. I want you to think about what's happening here. The Moabites have rebelled. They've attacked Israel, potentially had a little bit of success. The Israelites have now fought back and pushed them back into their own land, and they're about to reconquer them, and Misha does something drastic. He takes his oldest son, who was the heir apparent, and he sacrifices him on the wall in front of all of Israel. And the Israelites are so disgusted by what has transpired and taken place that they retreat back to Israel and they leave Misha alone. And so while I think there's a bit of exaggeration going on here, Misha did succeed in fulfilling the rebellion and the goal of the rebellion, which was to gain freedom from Israel. And so he builds this stele as a monument to make him look good because he successfully beaten Israel. Well, he didn't, but he killed his oldest son in front of them, and they said, we're gone, we're out of here. They were disgusted at what he had done, and they returned to their own land. And so you can see both sides of this. Misha would see this as a great victory, a great success. He builds this monument to commemorate it, where the biblical story, of course, shows that Israel really had the upper hand there, but they allowed him that freedom. There's a quote here by Kyle Boot. He's a speaker, writer, and editor for Apologetics Press. He said, taken as a whole, the Moabite stone remains one of the most impressive pieces of evidence verifying the historical accuracy of the Old Testament. And although this find has been around for almost 150 years, it still speaks to us today. And I want you guys to know, as we've looked at some of these, we're going to look at a couple of more, that this idea that archaeology is refuting you know, the Bible's claim is just absolutely false. So what we see time and time again is that archaeology is supporting what the Bible has said. I want to talk to you about some Nabonidus artifacts. Now this, uh, this is a little bit, we've we got to put some pieces together here. So I'm going to ask you to stay with me on this one. Uh, because for years, this was one of the biggest controversies related to biblical stories. All right, so in Daniel chapter 5, there's a man by the name of Belshazzar who's mentioned. Belshazzar the king. It says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines might drink therein. All right, so if you remember what's going on here, this is at the end of the Babylonian reign. Now, we talked in our part two about prophecy, about Daniel's chapter two prophecy of the succession of four kingdoms. He said, after Babylon, there's going to be the Medes and the Persians. After them, it's going to be the Greeks. Then there's going to be a fourth kingdom. And in the days of those kings, God would establish a kingdom that would never be destroyed. We're seeing the transition from kingdom one to kingdom two in this chapter. All right, so the Bible records that Belshazzar is the last, apparently last king, last king of Babylon, that his father is Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so I want us to pay attention to those two things. He's king of Babylon, his father is Nebuchadnezzar, and that he is actually going to be the one that loses the kingdom. Now what happens in this chapter, if you remember, is that he sees this hand begin to write on the wall. And it's mene mene tikul yufarsin is what's written there. And the translation is something like, you have been weighed, you have been measured, you have been found lacking, your kingdom will be divided and destroyed. And so he gets this prophecy that he's about to lose the kingdom, and that's exactly what happens. In verse 30 and 31, it says, And that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain, and Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. All right? So we've got a transition from Babylon to the Medes and the Persians that we see in the Bible. And the Bible's claim is that Belshazzar was the king, and his father was Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, I want us to remember that. So the reason skeptics loved this chapter for a long time was because all of the ancient lists that mentioned Babylonian kings never mentioned a man named Belshazzar. And in fact, there's no son of Nebuchadnezzar's that's named Belshazzar. And so they thought this was a grand example of where the Bible was obviously making stuff up. So here's the last five Babylonian kings. Nebuchadnezzar, who ruled for a long time, then Nebuchadnezzar's son actually did reign for a couple of years, uh, Amel Marduk. And then we've got a couple of other guys with real short reigns. And then the last king of Babylon was a man by the name of Nabonidus. Okay? And other king lists, ancient king lists, confirm this. So there's no Belshazzar. So again, if you're a biblical skeptic, you're going, see, the Bible's wrong. And the ancient records prove that Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. All right, so let's look at some things. Archaeologists have discovered 
the Nabonidus cylinders, which you can see on top. There's four of those. And this Nabonidus chronicle. And these artifacts are about that last Babylonian king, Nabonidus. All right? Four identical clay cylinders were discovered in 1854 at the base of a ziggurat or a temple in Ur. Another cylinder with a different inscription was discovered in 1881 uh, in Sippar near Babylon. These are the Nabonidus cylinders. And the Nabonidus Chronicle there on the bottom was acquired in 1879 by the British Museum. It's thought to have been found in the ruins of Babylon. These artifacts are going to prove that King Nabonidus, the official last king of Babylon, had a son named Belshazzar. And that Belshazzar actually ruled alongside him in a co-regency. All right, so we're going to show that as we go through. So who was Belshazzar? The Bible says he's the son of Nebuchadnezzar and the last king of Israel. All right, so what does archaeology tell us? As for me, Nabonidus, remember he's the actual last official king of Babylon. King of Babylon, save me from sinning against your great godhead and grant me a, uh, as a present a life long of days. And as for Belshazzar, the eldest son, my offspring... Instill reverence for your great Godhead in his heart, and may he not commit any cultic mistake. Uh, may he be sated with a life of plenitude. So suddenly these artifacts are discovered about that last king, Nabonidus of Babylon, and he mentions that he has a son, his eldest son, whose name is Belshazzar. And suddenly we've got a mention of Belshazzar that corresponds, maybe, maybe this is the same Belshazzar that Daniel chapter 5 has talked about. Well, let's keep digging in. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 4. I want you to think about this term father. Because remember, Daniel 5 said that Belshazzar's father was Nebuchadnezzar, right? So we've got to see if this can still jive. I want you to think about that word father, though, and how it's used in the Bible. It doesn't always mean literally the next you know, person up the chain of lineage. Sometimes it simply denotes lineage and ancestry. In fact, it's used that way in 2 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 7. If you remember this story, David, uh, his best friend Jonathan, had died uh, and he had a son named Mephibosheth, and David is searching for Saul and Jonathan's family members to bless them, and they find Mephibosheth. And what does David say to Mephibosheth, who is Jonathan's son? He says, I'll restore thee all the land of Saul thy father. Well, Saul wasn't Mephibosheth's father. It's his grandfather, right? Lineage. And so that word father doesn't always denote the literal father, but lineage, all right? So let's see, maybe that's a possibility with Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. There's a passage of scripture in Jeremiah 27 and verse 7 that actually prophesies about Nebuchadnezzar. And it says, all the nations shall serve him, Nebuchadnezzar, and his son, and his grandson, until the time of his own land comes, then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. All right? So there's a scripture here talking about Nebuchadnezzar that says Nebuchadnezzar is going to rule. Nebuchadnezzar's son is going to rule. Nebuchadnezzar's grandson is going to rule before the kingdom flips to the Medes and the Persians, all right? We saw in that ancient king list, Nebuchadnezzar ruled, check. His son was actually the next one that ruled, check. So the question becomes, is there a way to jive this grandson with Belshazzar, all right? How can we do that? Well, there is actually enough evidence that multiple sources believe that Belshazzar was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar through Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. And that Nabonidus, the last official king of Babylon, was married to Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. And they had Belshazzar together. So while Belshazzar is Nabonidus's son, he is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Which would fit the Jeremiah prophecy about Nebuchadnezzar, his son, which ruled after Nebuchadnezzar, and his grandson, which ruled Babylon before the Medes and the Persians took over. Okay? Uh, Easton's Bible Dictionary says he was the son of Nabonidus, talking about, about Belshazzar, by Nitocris, who was the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar and the widow of Nergal Sherazir, and the Encyclopedia Britannica. You say, well, Timothy, Easton's Bible Dictionary, that's a biblical source. So let's go outside the Bible. The Encyclopedia Britannica says the Babylonian inscriptions indicate that he was, in fact, the eldest son of Nabonidus, who was king of Babylon from 555 to 539, and of Nitocris, who was perhaps a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. All right? So there's enough external evidence that is showing that this Belshazzar, son of Nabonidus, was also the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. So in Daniel 5, if that's true, and it talked about the vessels of his father Nebuchadnezzar in that lineage, that would still be accurate. That's an accurate use of that word father. But here's the burning question. How was Belshazzar king? 
because Daniel 5 called him the king of Babylon. Well, the Nabonidus Chronicle actually answers that. It says, when the third year was about to begin, he, Nabonidus, entrusted the army to his oldest son. Who's Nabonidus' oldest son? He said himself, it's Belshazzar. His firstborn, the troops in the country he ordered under his command, he let everything go, entrusted the kingship to him, and himself, he started out for a long journey. So somewhere along the way, King Nabonidus, the last official king of Babylon, he turns over the kingdom to his son, Belshazzar, and he leaves on a journey. And so while Nabonidus is still the official king, Belshazzar is now acting king of the kingdom. He is king as well. And that's that co-regency we talked about, where there are essentially two kings of Babylon now, Nabonidus and his son Belshazzar, who's the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel 5 mentions Belshazzar, mentions his father Nebuchadnezzar. That fits if he's his grandson. It mentions that he's king. It fits if Nabonidus has taken off and entrusted the kingship to him. Then that's why Daniel 5, they would have mentioned Belshazzar the king. This is also why I believe in Daniel 5 and verse 16, Belshazzar tells Daniel that if he correctly interprets the handwriting on the wall, that Belshazzar will make him third in the kingdom. And let me ask you this. If Belshazzar was the one sole king and the Bible's just made it up, it's wrong or whatever, wouldn't it make more sense for Belshazzar to say, I'll make you second in command of the kingdom. I'll make you second. You'll be almost as powerful as me. Kind of like Joseph, second in command of Egypt, right? But he couldn't do that because who's the king still? Nabonidus. Who's acting king? Belshazzar. The highest position of authority he had to offer Daniel was third. And so the biblical record of a man named Belshazzar ruling as king over Babylon before the Medes and the Persians take over, who is in the lineage of Nebuchadnezzar, you start putting these archaeological artifacts behind it, and it all comes into place to prove what the Bible has been saying all along is true. Belshazzar is real. He lived. He existed. He was the guy who was acting king over the kingdom when the Medes took over. All right? One more of these uh, artifacts, and then we're going to talk a little bit about about Jesus. Uh, this is called the Pilate Dedication Stone. This is dated back to the first century, 26 to 36 AD. This was discovered in 1961 at a Roman amphitheater in Caesarea Maritima, Israel. This limestone block that was once used as a dedication stone of a nearby temple and was more recently used for seating at a local theater was turned over and on the back side of that had an extraordinary inscription written upon it. It reads, Tiberium Pontius Pilatus Prefectus Judea. Essentially what that is saying is Tiberium, that's Tiberius Caesar. This was evidently some gift or something that was given to the emperor of Rome. And it was from Pontius Pilate, as we would call him, the prefect of Judea. Now, this is another example of years where biblical skeptics believed the Bible was making stuff up because there was very little evidence that Pilate was a real guy. Uh, and so we've got this whole story about Pilate being the guy that sentences, sentences Jesus to crucifixion. And if they can prove that Pilate never existed, that's an easy way to say the Jesus story is made up. And then they find this. And it is evidently w was once a part of some gift that was given to the emperor from Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea. And just amazing what archaeology can tell us and can confirm for us that Pilate was a real guy. And if he's a real guy, then why are we doubting the story that the Bible tells? All right, Dr. William Albright, foremost authority in the Middle East uh, archaeology during his time, said there can be no doubt that the archaeology has, con or that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Old Testament. And Nelson Gluick, a renowned Jewish archaeologist, said no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Now that's the opposite of what Mr. Lazar was saying in the excerpt from the article that we read, where he's trying to say that archaeology is refuting the Bible somehow. The reality is it doesn't. It confirms it. And over and over again, these other very studied people look at this and go, there's, there's no piece of archaeology that's ever contradicted the Bible. In fact, we see the opposite. Now for the few remaining minutes that we have, I want to talk a little bit about Jesus himself. Because the most important part of our faith is based upon Jesus being the Son of God and being a very real God-made flesh person that came down and died on that cross for our sins. And so are there external evidences that show that Jesus was a real person and that the events of his life really did happen as the Bible talked about? Well, there are. Let's read the argument of a skeptic. So this man's name is David Fitzgerald. He wrote a book named Nailed, 
10 Christian myths that show Jesus never existed at all. And the point of this book is to go through and try to prove that Jesus was just a made-up guy and didn't really exist. And he says, doesn't it just make more sense to assume that there was a historical Jesus, even if we are unable to recover the real facts about his life and death? As it turns out, no. The opposite is true. The closer we look at the evidence for Jesus, the less solid evidence we find. And the more we find suspicious silences and curious resemblances to the pagan and Jewish religious ideas and philosophies that preceded Christianity. And once you begin to parse out the origins of this tradition or that teaching from their various sources, the sweater begins unraveling quickly until it becomes very difficult to buy that there ever was or even could have been any historical figure at the center. Now I'm going to tell you, and we're going to present and go over a lot of these things this morning, but this just flabbergasts me. It does, because the amount of evidence that there is that says Jesus was a real guy is astounding. But this guy's not alone. I was sitting in a college classroom in a senior-level history course, and the professor I literally said, there's just no evidence to say that Jesus was ever a real guy or ever really existed. And I heard that I'm sitting in the room going, I can't believe that this is actually being said because there's a tremendous amount of evidence, and I want to share that with you this morning. Let's look at Josephus. Josephus was a first century Jewish historian. He worked for the Romans, uh, chronicling the history of the Jews during this time. Uh, this comes from Book 18, Chapter 3, the 10th century Arabic translation. Uh, he says, at this time there was a wise man, this is Josephus writing, talking about Jesus, who was called Jesus and his conduct was good and he was known to be virtuous and many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die and those who had become his disciples did not abandon their loyalty to him. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, they believed that he was the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. Now, remember, in our uh, previous studies, we've used a lot of hostile witnesses, we've called them, right? People that aren't Christians, they aren't trained to promote Jesus. This is the case this morning as well. Josephus was a Jew. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He wasn't trying to push that Jesus was the Messiah, but he was a historian. So he's relaying what happened. He says Jesus existed. He was called Jesus. He was a good guy. His conduct was good. His followers believed he was the Messiah. Pilate put him to death. His followers stayed loyal to him. Uh, they believe that he was resurrected three days later. Uh, they believe that he's alive, and they believe that he's the Messiah. And so you've got this historian, this Jewish historian, who's not trying to promote Jesus, but he's saying, this happened. Notice he mentions Pilate as well. There's a re references to Pilate existing. All right, let's look at another one. Cornelius Tacitus. He was a Roman historian, about 116 AD. He was also a senator. Uh, he wrote, writes this about Jesus. He says, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Now here's a Roman historian, all right? And he mentions several things. He mentions Christ. He suffered the extreme penalty. That's a reference to Roman crucifixion. During the reign of Tiberius Caesar, at the hands of Pontius Pilate, okay, all the things that the Bible talks about, and then calls Christianity a mischievous superstition. I love that. It was checked for the moment, but then it broke out in Judea, and then, which was the first source of the evil, and then it eventually made its way to Rome. And he's complaining about the fact that Christianity has spread all the way to Rome, along with all the other hideous and shameful things that find their center in Rome. All right, Hostile witness, not trying to promote Jesus, but as he's recording history, he's recording that he was real that he existed, that he was put to death. Pontius Pilate being, uh, overseeing that, all of the things that the Bible talks about. And then isn't that what we see in Acts with, the, with Christianity spreading? That it started there and spread throughout Judea and Samaria and then the other most parts of the earth. And guess what we find? There's a book in the New Testament called Romans. You know why? Because Christianity got there. There was churches in Rome. Paul wrote to him. Okay? So exactly what this Roman historian is chronicling is exactly the story that the Bible tells. Let's look at another one. Meribar Serapion was a Roman philosopher in 73 to 200 AD. He wrote this letter to his son. Now this is interesting to me because it's just sort of an offhand reference. It's like the, the letter that he's actually writing has nothing to do with Jesus. He just uses Jesus as an example to prove a point that he's trying to make to his son. He says, what advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? It was just after that that their kingdom was abolished. That's a reference to AD 70 where Jerusalem was destroyed. God justly avenged these three wise men. The Athenians died of hunger. The Samians were overwhelmed by the sea. And the Jews, 
desolate and driven from their own kingdom live in complete dispersion. But Socrates is not dead because of Plato, neither is Pythagoras because of the statue of Juno, nor is the wise king because of the new law he laid down. And so this man is using Jesus as an example along with two other people to prove this point to his son that ultimately these guys, even though they died, their philosophies and their beliefs and stuff lived on in the followers followed after them. And he uses the Jews and their executed wise king as an example of that. Fascinating to me, an offhand remark that shows us that Jesus really was real, he really was killed, and there really was a new law that was laid down. Guess what that new law was? Christianity. You and I follow that today. Pliny the Younger was a Roman governor from 111 to 113 AD. He wrote a letter to Emperor Trajan asking him how to handle Christians. He said, for who can better give guidance to my hesitation or inform my ignorance? I have never participated in the trials of Christians. They were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsibly a hymn to Christ as to a God. So we've got a Roman governor that is sending a letter to the emperor going, all right, I I don't have experience with these Christians, so you're going to have to give me a little guidance on what I'm supposed to do. I've not participated in the trials of Christians before, but he says, these Christians, they meet on a fixed day. I wonder what day that was that they met on. Think it was Sunday? I bet it was. And they said they met before dawn. Now, we don't meet before dawn. It's a little bit early for us, maybe. But due to hiding, I'm sure, trying to be a little bit more discreet about their meeting places and such in a very hostile environment, maybe it helped to meet in the dark before dawn and have their worship. They sing hymns. We sing hymns. We've done that this morning. They believe that Christ is God. We believe that Christ is God. And this is a Roman governor describing the Christians of the first century in this way. He says, For the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. A bunch of them. These Christians, there's, there's a lot of them. They're a mischievous superstition. It's spread. There's a bunch of them. And we've got to deal with them. How do we deal with them? For the contagion of this superstition, there it is again, it's a contagion now, uh, has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. You know, it hasn't even only infected the urban areas, but it's also in the rural areas, the villages, the farms. Everybody's getting infected with this horrible disease of Christianity. When in reality, what we see in the New Testament is Christianity was spreading like wildfire because people knew and believed that Jesus was real, that he was the son of God, that he died for sins. And people were willing to give their lives, to spend their lives, give their lives and their deaths for Jesus. Not because he's made up, because he's real. And all of these historical records show that he's real. Lucian of Samoseta, 120 to 180 AD. He was a satirist and writer who was scornful of Christians. And this is his book, The Passing Peregrinus. He said, the Christians worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage uh, who introduced this new cult and was crucified on that account. You see, these misguided creatures, they start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains their contempt for death and self-devotion. Now, this guy is intentionally making a mockery of Christianity and Christians, but notice what he's saying as he's doing that. They worship the crucified one, okay? Their leader was crucified, that being Jesus, obviously. They believe that they're immortal for all time. Do you believe that you're immortal? We don't use those words maybe a lot. Our words would be eternal life. We've been given eternal life. We'll live eternally with God in heaven. We believe we're immortal through Jesus. And he's he's making fun of Christians, but he says that's what they believe, which explains their contempt for death. You know, a lot of first century Christians went to their death for Jesus, and they were willing to do that because they believed that life was more than this physical body. And so they went to their death believing that they would be immortal for all time. He goes on and he says, Their lawgiver taught that they are all brothers from the moment that they are converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. All this they take on faith. And again, he thinks this is worthy of a laugh. He's making fun of Christians. But the reality is we do see ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ, don't we? We're family, family of God. Uh, We deny other gods. We worship Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We live after the laws that Jesus established, and we do take this on faith. That's exactly what Christianity is. And this is what these ancient writers were writing about because it's not a made-up story. Jesus wasn't just some uh, fictitious person that was written into the history books. He was real. He lived. People saw him. There were eyewitnesses. We'll talk more about that in part five. But I want you to know this morning that the external evidences says that Jesus was a real person. He really was crucified. And I believe he was crucified as the Son of God for your 
and my sins. Now let's talk a little bit about the darkness at Jesus' crucifixion. This will be our last section this morning before we close. As we think about Jesus in this story, the critical moment is this crucifixion. As Jesus is the Lamb of God dying on this cross for our sins. And there is something that is stated in Scripture that is a spectacular claim around the time of this crucifixion. If you remember that, you remember that it is said that there was darkness that came over the earth for three hours between the hours of noon and three o'clock in the middle of the day that the earth went dark. Now that's a supernatural claim because as we'll talk about in just a moment, there's no natural phenomenon that would explain that. And so if Jesus is made up, wasn't really crucified, or even if he really was a real guy, he really was put to death by the Romans, but he wasn't really the son of God, you know what we should not see in the historical record? We should see no mention of darkness from noon to three during the daytime, right? If that never happened, if Jesus really wasn't who he said he was, there should be no record of some three hour in the middle of the day long darkness. You know what we find though? There is a record of that, all right? So Matthew 27, this is our scriptural reference to talk about the darkness. It says, now that from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land under the ninth hour. This is the Jewish uh, clock essentially. So 6 a.m. starts the day. The sixth hour is noon. Ninth hour is three. We've got darkness spanning from noon to three o'clock. And about the ninth hour, Jesus uh, cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Verse 50, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. All right, so I want you to pay attention to a couple of things. The Bible is claiming that at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, the earth goes dark for three hours. And at the same time as Jesus dies, there's earthquakes, there's rocks that are splitting in half, there's all sorts of turbulence that's going on on the earth and in this area. Okay? And again, if Jesus isn't real, if all this is just made up, we should see no record of that in the external sources. If we do see record of that in the external sources, that's pretty good evidence, I would say, that the story the Bible is telling is true. So let's look. Thallus was a first century Greek historian who covered Middle Eastern history from the 12th century BC to the first century AD. Now this original work has been lost, but we do have records of it through other writers. Uh, one of those is Julius Africanus. And he is gonna talk about Thallus and what Thallus wrote uh, so Africanus writes, On the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness, Thallus, in the 263 third book of his history, calls, as it appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. Okay, so I want you to know what's going on. Now, Julius Africanus was a second and third century Christian traveler and historian. So you would expect him, if this is all just made up, then he'd be in on it. And so he could be writing about this darkness and you could dismiss it and go, ah, he's just a Christian. All right, but he's talking to non-Christians and he's quoting Thallus, who is not a Christian. And he even cites exactly where Thallus talks about this. He says, Thallus, the first century Greek historian, he talks about this darkness and he called it an eclipse of the sun. Now I want you to notice something. If he's calling an eclipse of the sun, what is he doing unintentionally? He's admitting there was darkness, right? Now, he says there's a reason for it. There's a natural explanation. It's an eclipse. Eclipses happen, but there was darkness. So I just want us to notice that. Thallus says there was darkness. Phlegon of Trails was a Greek writer who lived in the 2nd century AD. He wrote Olympiads, a historical series of 16 books covering the date 776 uh, BC to 137 AD. He said in the fourth year, however, of Olympiad 202, an eclipse of the sun happened, greater and more excellent than any that had happened before it. At the sixth hour, day turned into dark night, so that the stars were seen in the sky, and an earthquake in Bithynia toppled many buildings of the city of Nicaea. This is a Greek writer. He's not a Christian. He's not trying to push a Christian agenda. He's just reporting what happened. And he says, you know what happened on the sixth hour of this particular day? The earth went dark. You could see stars in the sky. But not only that, he mentions what else? Earthquakes. Buildings toppling over. Remember the scripture talked about rocks being rent, split apart? Buildings toppling over would certainly fit that. And we've got a Greek historian that's talking about this darkness and these earthquakes. Oh, what about Tertullian? Tertullian is a second century Christian apologist. Now, Tertullian himself is a Christian, all right? So if you're going to be the skeptic, you could say, ah, I'm going to dismiss what he says. But I want you to pay attention to who he's talking to and what he says. He says, at the moment of Christ's death, 
the light departed from the sun and the land was darkened at noonday, that's that sixth hour, which wonder is related in your own annals and is preserved in your archives to this day. Now, Tertullian, he's a Christian apologist, so he's talking to non-Christians and trying to prove to them that Jesus was real. And he says, look, this happened. There was darkness, but don't take my word for it, all you non-Christian people. Look in your own history books, he says. It's recorded there in your own annals. It's there. You've got it. You know what that tells me? All of these different cultures, all of these different peoples, they've got these stories of this darkness that happened at noonday and earthquakes and buildings toppling over and all of these amazing things happening on this day that again, if Jesus wasn't real, there shouldn't be any record of that. If the biblical story is false, there shouldn't be any record of that. If there is a record of that, you've got two options. Either the Bible story is true or there's some other naturalistic explanation to explain why all of that happened. So, could it have been a solar eclipse? No. The short answer is that it would have been impossible for it to be a solar eclipse. NASA actually says the longest a solar eclipse can last is seven and a half minutes. That's a far cry from the three hours of darkness that the Bible talks about and that all of these external sources talk about. So a solar eclipse happens seven and a half minutes, longest length. Couldn't have been that. But we also know it couldn't have been that because of the time frame. John 19, 14, and 15 says it was the preparation of the Passover. And about the sixth hour, he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. All right, so the time of Jesus' crucifixion, it was the time of the Passover. All right, and then we've got external sources to show that as well. Uh, Babylonian Talmud, that's uh, Jewish writings, says on the eve of the Passover, Yeshua, Jesus was hanged. Okay, so I just want us to recognize Jesus was crucified at the time of Passover. Why is that important? Because the Passover starts at the full moon phase. Now, if you remember your astronomy and you remember the phases of the moon cycle, it takes about 28 days or so for the moon to rotate all the way around to the earth. And at full moon phase, the moon's on the other side. It's not in between. So it actually would have been completely impossible at the time that Jesus was crucified for it to be a solar eclipse because the moon's on the wrong side of the planet. Okay? So it couldn't have been. Two weeks later, it would have been in a new moon phase and then it could have been possible that there was a solar eclipse. But again, it would have only lasted seven and a half minutes. So you've got the wrong time frame, and you've got solar eclipses that NASA says can't last longer than seven and a half minutes. The reality is it's not a solar eclipse. It doesn't fit the biblical or the external narratives. Because remember, these external sources we've also talked about, talked about this eclipse being more powerful and greater than any eclipse that they've ever seen before, right? Well, if it's a three-hour-long eclipse, I'm sure that's how you would describe it. A crazy long eclipse. All right, so what caused it? There's other theories. Some people say it was a, it was a lunar eclipse, a blood moon. Uh, those only happen at night, not during the day, not noon to three. It's impossible. Some people say it was atmospheric dust came over the, that region, that, that earth. that blocked the sun from shining for three hours. You can come up with all sorts of theories if you want to to try to explain away if you're willing to take God out of the equation. What I'm telling you this morning is that there is a much more logical explanation for why the earth went dark for three hours. Julius Africanus records this. He says, Phlegon records that in the time of Tiberius Caesar at full moon, there was a full eclipse of the sun from the sixth hour to the ninth, manifestly that one of which we speak. But what has an eclipse in common with an earthquake? The rending rocks, and the resurrection of the dead, and so great a perturbation throughout the universe. He makes a great point here, too. Even if you want to say it was atmospheric dust that caused this darkness, well, what does that have to do with an earthquake that the external sources also say happened? And buildings toppling over and rocks splitting apart. And the biblical narrative that talks about the Jewish veil of the temple being split from top to bottom. And people coming forth from the dead. And all of these crazy things that are happening in this time period. What in the world does atmospheric dust have to do with any of that? The reality is there's a better explanation. I want to share with you my belief and viewpoint on what caused this. It's going to be pretty simple. Luke 19, 37 through 40, we see Jesus coming in, uh, coming down from the Mount of Olives. It says, as he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I want you to imagine in your mind and think about what's going on here as Jesus, the Son of God, has been, sent down, has been sent down from heaven to be the Lamb of God, the sacrifice, the Messiah. 
And now human beings have taken God made flesh and they have hung him on a tree on a cross. After beating him and spitting upon him and mocking him, and now they are killing him on this cross. And he is bearing the weight of the world's sin upon his shoulders. I want you to remember as well that as this is happening, you've got this darkness that's going on. You've got earthquakes. You've got buildings toppling over, rocks being rent. You've got the temple, uh, the veil being split from top to bottom as if some big giant grabbed it from the top and went, which is essentially exactly what happened as God split that. And as you think about why that is, I think about John chapter 1. It says, all things were made by him, talking about Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus was not only the Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah, he was the creator. And the creation was putting to death their creator. And as the creator of the universe and of this world was dying, hanging on that tree, the earth reacted. The sun stopped shining. The earth trembled. Rocks split apart. The temple God tore it in two. This was a supernatural event. This was not caused by atmospheric dust. This was not a blood moon. This was not a solar eclipse. This was not anything like the world had ever seen before. This was God saying, this is my son. And the creation reacting to the death of its creator. Jesus said, if my disciples weren't praising me, the stones would stand up and praise me. We saw the stones and everything else at this time praising and glorifying, but also showing the immense pain of that moment when Jesus was put to death. The Encyclopedia Britannica said these independent accounts prove that in ancient times even the opponents of Christianity never, never doubted the historicity of Jesus. John 1.14 says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So I want to ask you this morning, what do you believe? Do you believe that the Bible is historically accurate? Do you believe Jesus was real? I do. I take that on faith. I believe the Bible. I believe it's the Word of God. But I also recognize the faith-strengthening elements of knowing that these external sources and writers and pieces of archaeology confirm what the Bible has said all along. And if you believe that, and you're not a Christian this morning, I'm asking you to seriously consider believing in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, repenting of your sins, confessing in Him as your Lord and Savior, being baptized into Him and having your sins washed away, because you want to be like those Christians mentioned in the first century, to have that immortality for all time. And you can have that through Jesus Christ. He offers it to you, to every one of us. And if we can help you with that or anything else this morning, we ask that you come forward, sit on the front pew as we stand and sing.